decision. Our history and our future collide in this moment. If you want to see the blessings of the Lord your God upon your families, then you must serve Him only. But if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord your God only, then choose you this day whom you will serve. The gods that seek your destruction, that incite war and violence, that murder your children, or the Lord your God who is holy and reigns over all creation. I have made my decision. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen, amen. Man, only one more week of this series left after today. You know that, right? Some of you are grateful. I am too. I'm also grateful to uh, have our sixth grandchild, Avery Rose, in the house this morning. Yeah, she's here, front row. So grateful for her and for Nick and Taylor being here as well. What a time to be a follower of Jesus Christ in this nation. I'm so grateful that the work that Jesus does calls us to be awake to come out of our sleep, to come out of a life that has him separate where we are dead in our sin. And he calls us not to just have a part of our life awakened, but every part of our life awakened to him so that he becomes Lord of all in us, every part of our life. And that that is something deeply personal he does, but it's never designed to be something deeply private. It's meant to be shared. It's meant to be lived out. It's meant to be expressed. It's meant to be for others. So that you live this out while you're lifting him up and you're declaring his good news to everyone around. Starting in your marriage, onto your family, extended family, friends, neighbors, coworkers, your whole city, the entire state, your nation, and the world. That there is a Savior who sets you free, who has a way of life that he calls us to live in him. And he is the king over all kings and the Lord over all lords. Amen? He is. This is what he calls us to. So as we stand today, at a time that um, sadly a lot of churches and Christians are viewing as kind of separate from their faith. There are Christians today who like to take the whole concept of government and politics and just completely isolate it from faith. I get it because this world of politics is filled with so many deceptions, lies, and corruption. And then faith is this holy, precious part that is something you treasure. And you almost want to keep these two things separate. But faith demands that we take what he has done in us 
and allow that to permeate us and the world around us. And the reason politics is filled with such corruption today is because our own nation has chosen to remove God from it early back in the 1960s. Because there came a day where they said we will not have prayer in our public government-run schools. There came a day where they said we will not have prayer and the Ten Commandments in our government buildings. There came a day when they said we will not have mentions of God in our political party. And when you remove God from any of those, what can you expect except corruption? So we are here as believers and followers of Jesus Christ and members of Vertical Church to say there is a way that the Lord has called us to and we are going to walk in it. And we come to announce and pronounce that way to the world around us today. So, the choice to vote, the opportunity to vote, to participate in government and politics for a believer is a holy calling. Because you and I, in that moment, have the opportunity to be salt and light, which we have been called to, in the darkness. We have our opportunity to speak. Here is the way of life we promote and advocate. Here is what the Bible says. Here is the philosophy and the direction that we believe is right, not just for ourselves, but for future generations. My kids, my grandkids, and their grandkids, and their grandkids, and for those who cannot speak today. We want to have an influence on our culture, and election is one of the most powerful ways you can do that. It's one, not the only. It is one. So to do so, it's important that you and I approach a time like this with a biblical perspective, a biblical basis, not just political, but biblical. And whatever the Bible says is what we ought to say. We don't want to say something in a political arena just because our parents said it or just because generations in our family have said it or just because it feels good to say that. No, we don't do any of that. We take what the Bible says and we use that to make our decisions for life. We don't say, well, I know what the Bible says, but I just feel like it has nothing to do with your feel likes. It has everything to do with what God says it is like, not what you feel it is like. You know that that Jesus even kind of walked through that as well, right? And he submitted his own will in the garden on the night before his arrest. Jesus said, Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. What a powerful picture. The Son of God submitting his preferences to the Father's ordinances. That's what you and I have to do. It really has little to do with our feelings or preferences. In fact, as you walk in Christ, you learn to recognize the difference and you learn to die 
to self. Hello? You die to self so that you can walk in the spirit. In fact, when you walk in the spirit, you will die to the flesh, really, is the way it works. So we don't live our lives by feel-goods or feelings. Husbands, if you wake up each day and try to gauge, how much do I feel like loving my wife today? Guys, you already know where that's headed. Honest, there are days I wake up and I don't always have the feeling of doing everything that I ought to do in that day. But I choose by faith to put what's right over what I feel in the moment. And we can go on down the line and talk to ladies too, but we won't. We'll just leave it on the guys this morning. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) And the guy's like, dang it. So I think I made my point. So when it comes to a decision like the one before us, you've got to learn to set aside your own feelings and preferences and say, okay, God, what does faith demand? Because faith demands a decision. The Bible has truth, and it's important that I die to myself and live to what you say is true. Now, this means I have to choose to be responsible responsible to what God says. And that's an important quality. It's an important quality for everybody, parents. It's something you're trying to teach your kids, right? To be responsible. Do what your teacher tells you. Do your chores. Do your homework. Do what's right. Don't hit your sister on the head. You know, don't take your brother's toys. Don't talk like that. Let's be responsible. And by the way, you say to your kids, be responsible even when I'm not around, especially when I'm not around. Don't make us look bad. Don't be, don't be all cuckoo out there, and the, you know. Be responsible. Did you know that the gospel teaches the highest level of responsibility? It really does. It teaches it greater than any curriculum that has ever been developed from day one in any education system. Let me show you a few things that the gospel teaches in terms of responsibility. So the Bible teaches us that, or the gospel teaches us that we are accountable to God, that he is a holy God and we have to take an assessment of what he says is true and right and holy and an assessment of our lives because he will hold us accountable. You will be held accountable for your words, thoughts, deeds, and actions, everything about your life. You will be held accountable. You are held accountable because he is a holy God. What that leads to is responsibility because he makes a way not only for you to own your sin and say, I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which is great responsibility in accepting that. Do you know that? Accepting the fact that you have sinned. You have fallen short of the glory of God. This puts you on the path to responsibility of admitting I cannot make it on my own. I need rescue. I need a savior. I need to be changed. And God says, gotcha. I sent my son for that purpose that he might take on your transgressions, that he might take what you deserved 
Now, I'm showing you grace, God says, responsible, responsibility accepts that grace by faith. God, thank you for what you have given me. This is responsibility. I own my sin. I own the plan for redemption. And now I own my responsibility to be a steward of that. You have had something handed to you of great value. Now, don't squander it. Don't lose it. Don't think it cheap. Live it out. You have been forgiven, forgive someone else. You have been loved, love someone else. You have been given a calling, live that out. Don't hide your light. You're a city that's set on a hill. The gospel teaches responsibility. It teaches generosity that I give out of the abundance of what he has done in me. There's no greater form of responsibility than accepting the gospel. Of accepting what God has done for you, what you have done, and what you need in him. Responsibility is at the heart of the gospel. Responsibility is at the heart of our nation's heritage even, as I will show you today. And responsibility is what we are called to during this time of election. Our message today is called Faith Demands and God Rewards Responsibility. Mm. Let's, put some, let's put some feet to all of this today. The scripture says righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. When you think about it, there really can't be any other greater verse that deals with responsibility than this. You see, righteousness owns the fact that you've sinned. Righteousness owns the fact that you need a savior. Righteousness owns the fact that that comes only through Jesus Christ. And when you accept that responsibility, God exalts that. When a people group accepts that responsibility, God blesses that people group. When a family accepts that responsibility, God blesses that family. God blesses the person who works hard for what they have been given in talent and what they use to provide for their family. God blesses that. God blesses responsibility that says, I'm going to care for the weak and the voices who cannot speak. That's why righteousness, responsibility, exalts a nation. It causes a nation to be secure, strong, powerful, profitable. But this verse also says that sin is a reproach to any people. Reproach is a word that means weak, failing, and destructive, or has destruction in it. So sin is a disregard for God, which is irresponsibility. Sin is a rejection of God's holiness, irresponsibility. Sin is a demand that I'll do my own thing. I don't want to do what anybody else tells me to do. I don't want anybody telling me how to live my life. Irresponsibility. Sin is selfish and uncaring. That's irresponsibility. That's why sin is a reproach. The nation that exalts righteousness, God will exalt. The nation that exalts sin, God will bring reproach on. And today, it appears 
that we stand in a balance. Honestly, I think we've been under the reproach for quite some time. I believe we have been under the weight of a nation that has walked in defiance and rebellion and rejection of God. A nation that has rejected God's ways, has, has pushed faith into a tiny compartment that lives in a building for two hours on Sunday morning. And today we are seeing the consequences of that in our nation. We are weak. We are frail. We are in turmoil. There's great conflict. And someone has well said, you get the government that you are. You get the government that you are. If you are weak and you are irresponsible and you are selfish, you will get a government the same. That's why it is our responsibility to vote, but it is our responsibility to repent first and be followers of Jesus Christ before we're a follower of any person at all. Our nation was structured in its early days by people of faith for men and women of faith. I love to read the works of our founding fathers. John Adams, our second president, wrote this. We have no government armed with the power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to be governed of any other. You can't put enough laws and guidelines in place to restrict bad behavior. You notice that? In fact, the more laws you put in place, it seems like the more people want to violate them. And our own constitution wasn't written for a people who were wicked and godless. It was written for a people who were God-fearing, filled with faith. And they quickly recognized that as long as America is good, these laws will work. But the day that America ceases to be good, we'll be in trouble because you're not going to put together enough laws to restrain the vile and evil heart of man. It's impossible. So with that in mind, over the past two weeks before today, and today next week, we're looking at eight biblical truths that demand a decision that should serve as foundational for us as we look at our future as we look at what's next for our country. This is where faith and politics come together. This is where we begin to see redemption and transformation. This is where you and I do our part as believers to speak into the culture. And we will no longer be silent. We will no longer keep these two separate. We will bring them together. As I've said before, I say today, my goal, in this series is to not or is not to promote 
a specific candidate, or a party. My goal is to present biblical truth that should shape what you and I make our decisions on. These truths are foundational, they are eternal, and they are massive in scale to the point that I personally would say all other matters are secondary to these eight. Here they are, the ones we've looked at so far. Truth number one, God designed life to begin in a mother's womb. Taking that life is murder. Truth number two, God designed two genders, male and female. Marriage is for them only. Anything else is a distortion of his glory. I read a statistic this past week that shocked me. Recent statistics said that for women over 60 years of age, 5% identify as LGBTQ. For women under 25, that number is 30%. Something has happened in the culture. Things are changing. The church has been silent. It is time we speak. Truth number three, God's calling of the church to assemble and to action is essential. We must stand against being marginalized. Our own First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. I'm so, I'm so glad this morning that you chose to exercise your freedom and get up and come and gather with the assembled church. Amen. I'm glad for those who are joining us online as well. I hurt for cities and states that are still under mandates telling them they cannot gather or there will be penalty. Truth number four, God calls believers to express their faith. No earthly authority is greater than this command. You and I are called by God and have the freedom by our own constitution and declaration of independence to live out our convictions to choose how you express your faith. It's not government's role to tell you what you can and cannot do in your faith. To tell you how you can practice it or that you have to violate your convictions. That you have to go against what you see as your own personal matter of faith. Our nation was founded on that freedom. But that was last week. You can go back and check out last week's message. Today we look at truths five and six that are incre incredibly relevant. All, all of these are. So number five, truth number five is this. Personal responsibility is the foundation for life. Government should reward and protect this, not punish it. Now stay with me this morning. I'm going somewhere, and I want us to all get there together. The Bible says in Romans 13 that the role of government is to punish evil and reward good. Amen? That's all government. That's their role. That's what God designed it for. Good 
are those who are responsible. Government should reward those who are responsible, doing good. Evil, rebellion, stealing, murder, rape, those are all irresponsible behaviors. And government should punish that. But we live in a culture today that has it all backwards. We live in a culture today that wants the freedom to do what it wants, even if it violates the law. They still want to act out, protest, do what they want to do. What you say is true for you is not necessarily true for me, they say. They want to they do their thing. And heaven help you if you hurt their feelings. Because to the world, that's the highest offense. To a culture today that is godless, that is the highest offense. To hurt someone's feelings. To tell them no. To tell them they can't have something. To tell them that's a violation of constitutional rights or law. That's the highest offense. And what the culture today, sadly, what they now live by is if you have something I want, I should be able to take it from you and you keep your mouth shut. You don't have a right to say anything because this is what the culture would say. I have a right to what you have because it's not right that you have more than I have. Oh, now that's a problem, folks. That's not just a problem because I don't want my stuff stolen. But that's a problem because it violates biblical principles. You see, personal responsibility is at the core of our faith. The Ten Commandments are all based on responsibility, doing what is right. In fact, two of them deal with the very concept that I can own some things and you can't have them. Thou shalt not steal. It's not a lot of words, but it's a big important truth. If I have something, it's mine. It's not yours. Don't come try to take it and I won't come try to take what you have. God affirms that you can own some things and they be yours and you can keep them. It's good. It's right. Another one of the commandments also affirms this when it says, thou shalt not covet. In other words, you can't not only not go take it from someone else, but when someone else has something that you look over and say, wow, I wish I had that. You're in dangerous territory because here's how the command reads. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his servants, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. In other words, your neighbor can own those things. It's okay. It's right. It's right that he has what he has earned and worked for and has been blessed with. Don't look over at it and say, it's not fair that I don't have all that stuff. Don't look over at it and say, I need to have some kind of government program that gives me all of that kind of stuff. 
Don't look over and say, I'm going to find a way to take that stuff in the middle of the night. No, it's not yours. The Bible affirms personal ownership. And God sets the boundary and says, don't take it and don't even want it. You stay focused on what God has for you. You be responsible before God for what he has for you and be responsible with what you have and let your neighbor be responsible to God and with what he has for his things. This is the truth. So we have responsibilities within our nation and individually. We have freedoms. You have the freedom to go out and earn a living. That's a great thing. Get a job. Make as much money as you want. Work as long as you want. Work as little as you want. You won't get very much, but you have that freedom to go earn a living. You have freedom in our nation to own private property. Huh, how about that? It lines up with scripture. You can own your house. You can own your car. You can own a boat if you want. It's yours. You're responsible for that. You have a right and a freedom to protect your property, to say, back off, bud. That's my car. That's my house. You have a right to defend yourself in this nation, to protect yourself. You, in fact, have a right, our own Constitution says, and Founding Fathers said, to protect and defend yourself, not just against the bad guys out there, but even against a government that might turn on you one day and try to take from you what you have. Hmm, that does say that. You're going to have to look it up if you don't believe me. If you've been watching too much media lately, you don't believe any of the stuff that I'm talking about. I'm sorry. The news you choose will determine your views. And you, you, you might need to change your news source. Uh, we have the freedom today to worship freely. We do. It's guaranteed to us. We have a right to express our convictions, and we have the right, freedom, and responsibility, watch this, to educate our children. That's a parent's responsibility, not the state's. You might choose to allow the state to help educate your child. That's your choice. That ought to be your choice. That shouldn't be a forced choice. That should be your choice. You're the one responsible for God and responsible for your family. God always protects and supports those who are responsible. And good government should do the same. Good government should reward those who are responsible and punish those who are not. So when we get this twisted, you get somewhat what we have in our culture today. When you get a group of people who say there is no God, there's no need for accountability to him or accountability period, there's no need for responsibility, then chaos ensues. Then government begins to exercise over control and authority and they attempt to be the provider for all things. Because when you remove God from the equation, the government will step in and try to be God. And when that happens, you and I 
better be on the alert. Because we owe an allegiance to God alone. I have a right, responsibility, and accountability to him alone. I want what I've got in my family and in my life to come from him. I don't want it to come from some man-organized government. Provision is meant to come from God through me working. Not from an entity that sends out a check to me regardless of what I have done. But when the culture gets it all twisted, then people begin to lose their rights and freedoms. And if I lose my rights and freedoms and you lose your rights and freedoms and all of a sudden the money that you earn is no longer yours but it's taken from you so it can be redistributed to others, guess what happens to the culture? Those who have worked hard up to that point and have all their money taken away said, why? And those who have done very little and all of a sudden start getting checks when doing very little say, why? I'm going to keep doing very little. You have just destroyed incentive and faith and a God-centered culture from life. See, I told you, the Bible has a lot to say about government and politics. In fact, here's what Proverbs 12, 24 says. It says, the hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put to forced labor. Proverbs is so rich. One verse. You, you could almost build a, a society off of this verse. This verse tells us that those who are responsible are going to have some success in their life, favor. God's going to bless them. They're going to excel in their work. They're going to obey authority. They're going to be paying bills and they're going to be blessed. They are diligent. They get up early. They go to work. They use their energy to work. They find innovation, creativity. They want to work hard because God's put a desire within them. They want to honor that and they want what they have to come from God through their work. And God blesses that. The hand of the diligent will rule. They will be elevated. They will be promoted. Watch this. They got promoted because they were responsible. They didn't get promoted because they cried. Are you with me? Do you want the guy or woman working near you at work to be elevated over you because they went in and said, I don't like not having the same pay he does. You want that person elevated up above you and promoted? No. But if someone in your work field, you watch them and they work hard. They're diligent. They get there early. They stay late. They don't complain. They do their work. They seek to glorify God in the whole process. And you find out they get a raise. You're like, I get it. They put it in. God blesses that kind of diligent responsibility. But this verse also says that the lazy man will be put to forced labor. The one who's irresponsible. The one who can't get it done. The one who wants to sleep more than work. The one who wants to stay home more than go out. The one who wants to make everybody else do their work instead of them do their part. He says, this man, he's going to be put to forced labor. The one who's irresponsible, he's going to have to have everything done for him. If you can't self-govern, someone will govern you. But if you will own your situation, own your responsibility, 
God will bless that. Biblical truth, Proverbs 12, 24. Proverbs 13, 4 says something similar. The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. I love this because it really doesn't have as much to do with work and money as it does with the soul. It has everything to do with the passion and the drive inside a person. The one who is the lazy man, it's his soul that's got the issue. Some another, he's convinced himself that he shouldn't work hard, but that he should get something for it. And this man will end up having nothing. He'll be frustrated. But the diligent in his soul, he recognizes a responsibility he has before God. Responsibility he has to his family. Responsibility he has to do what God's called him to do. And that man, he ends up being made rich. It may be in financial, but it's most likely more in his own soul. God's more concerned about the soul than he is even what we own. So uh, our own founding fathers, of course, knew that. Our own Declaration of Independence reads like this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Here are the rights that we have before God and in our nation. That among these are life. You have the freedom and liberty to pursue life. Liberty. You have the right to pursue to be free and the pursuit of happiness. You have the freedom and right to pursue a life that is responsible and joyful as you keep these laws. That to secure these rights, in other words, in order for this to happen, for people to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, governments are instituted. Governments, watch this, governments are in place to protect your freedoms. Governments are in place to ensure that you can have freedom, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's why they're instituted. Among men deriving their just powers from who? The consent of the governed us. Our nation has been established so that those in authority get their power from us. They have no power unless we put them in place. Our own founding fathers knew this. So they built into the fabric of our nation this concept of freedom. That it's not the government's responsibility to educate. It's not the government's responsibility to provide health care. It's not the government's responsibility to provide my income. It's not the government's responsibility to monitor my religion. It's not the government's role to be God in my life. Interesting, when uh, Thomas Jefferson was elected president, he stood on the day of his inauguration and he gave a speech, much like we have seen presidents do in our time. Thomas Jefferson, 1801, here's what he said. He looks back on all that's happened in the nation up to this time, where some almost 30 years past uh, the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And he says, with all these blessings, they all knew. And he says, with all these blessings, 
What is necessary to make us a happy and prosperous people? What will it take, Thomas Jefferson was saying? Still one thing more. Here it is, he says. Fellow citizens, a wise and frugal government. That's what we need. Which shall restrain men from injuring one another, protecting us, shall leave them otherwise free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement, that you have freedom to work harder, save more, buy more, do what you want to do, and shall not take from the mouth of the labor the bread it has earned. Now, there's going to be necessary taxation. But here is Thomas Jefferson saying, government must not be the one who takes bread out of the mouth of the earner. He says, this is the sum of good government. Mm. I told you, the Bible and government go together. Thomas Jefferson would go, well, let me end his there. Let me go on to truth number six. I've kind of ended this whole idea of personal responsibility. Let me move on to truth number six. The biblical plan for provision is hard work and dependence on God, not government. I'm going to tie this into a secondary truth here. Because there's a push in our land today toward a very different way of life than you and I have known as citizens of these United States. And this is a biblical truth. This is a solid foundational truth that you and I must understand. And it's based on a verse from 2 Thessalonians 3.10. It says this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. There are two ways that are before the American people today. There is a system, a philosophy, an approach that often is described as the free market system that protects you and your freedoms and your responsibilities. But there's another system at play today that is being discussed, promoted, and will be in our hands to choose. It is a way in which the rights of the individual are decreased and the role of government is increased. Now there are titles for this that some use. Socialism, Marxism. This is no longer just political talk. This is now a reflection of a way of life. This is a direction and a philosophy that directly goes in contradiction to everything our nation was founded upon. I know some people like to look at the book of Acts if you're a student of scripture and say, well, didn't they practice socialism in the book of Acts? When it says in Acts chapter 2, now all who believed were together, had all things in common, sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. Some people use that and say, socialism. They sold everything they had, they put it all together, they divided it up, and everyone had something, if anyone had need. That could not be further from socialism because it was not a forced role. It was a voluntary role. 
It was within the church. It was for responsible people. It was based on everyone having their own property. And they sold it and gave it whenever someone had a need. Not a forced manipulation of everyone's income that brought it all together, divided it up, distributed it back out so that there were none who were rich and poor, but there was this flat line of everybody. They could not be further from the truth. Acts chapter 2 does not teach a way of socialism. They valued private ownership. They valued private or personal responsibility. And they valued generosity. They were saying, hey, this family has a need. Can we come together and help meet a need? And the church, as they chose, would voluntarily give to help meet a need. No one was forced even Ananias and Sapphira, you go over into that story a little bit further over, and they come in to the, to the church gathering, and they say, uh, yeah, uh, here's how much we have to contribute, and they were lying. They really didn't. They had a lot more, and God struck them dead. Was it because they refused to participate in the socialistic system? No. It was because they lied and said, hey, look how much we have to give to everybody that's in need. Here you are. When all the while they were lying about what they really had. That's why they faced consequences. Not because they refused to participate, but because they lied about what they had, what they had been given. God is very concerned and more concerned about our heart and our testimony than the money in our pockets. And even in an assembly of faith and church life, here at Vertical, we want to help people, and we have helped people in our history. Part of what you give goes to help people in need. Our leadership team, that's part of our elder group, gets together, Hears those requests, prays, meets with those involved, and helps the best way possible. But these men are wise, and they know this, that the greatest need for anybody is not just some more cash on the table. The greatest need for anybody is to know the presence of God in their life and the role that God has for them and for them to develop responsibility. You don't help anybody just by doling out cash. You help somebody as they grow in their faith and become responsible. So our leadership team has done that with anyone who's had a need. Their greater concern is, how can we help them in their faith in this matter? If this gift will help them in their faith, we're in. This truth is essential for us. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Benjamin Franklin, in 1776, 1776, traveled to England. And he traveled there, and Benjamin Franklin began to look around at what all was going on in England that had a more socialized approach to caring for needs. And Benjamin Franklin decided to write to the local newspaper and did so under a ghost name. They didn't know it was Benjamin Franklin. I want you to look at what he said. He said, I observed in different countries that the more public provisions were made for the poor, the less they provided for themselves and, of course, became poorer. 1776. 
And on the contrary, the less that was done for them, the more they did for themselves and became richer. In other words, the more responsibility you help people develop, the more they own what they've got, become responsible, and end up with more later. He goes on and he says this. So many hospitals to receive them when they are sick or lame, founded and maintained by voluntary charities. So many alms houses for the aged of both sexes, together with the solemn general law made by the rich to subject their estates to a heavy tax for the support of the poor. Do you see what I'm saying? Tom, I mean, uh, Benjamin Franklin was saying, I see all this. They've got hospitals. They've got all these agencies. And the rich are giving down to the poor to try to help them. And he says there, uh, under these obligations, are our poor modest, humble, and thankful? And do they use their best endeavors to maintain themselves and lighten our shoulders of this burden? Are they grateful that we do all of this? He went on and said this. On the contrary, I affirm that there is no country in the world in which the poor are more idle, dissolute, drunken, and insolent. The day you pass the act, you took away from before their eyes the greatest of all inducements to industry, frugality, and sobriety. You took away the reason. You took away responsibility. You took away what they needed most. He finished that by saying, more will be done for their happiness by inuring them to provide for themselves than could be done by providing all your estates among them. This was 1776. Now, I read an article this week entitled, Five Reasons Socialism is Not Christian. from our website called the Christian Post, article written by Julie Royce. I want to mention these briefly to you. And I want you to understand, before anything is said political here, it is biblical first. Here are some things that happen when you adopt a socialistic view. Socialism is based first on a materialistic worldview. Socialism says, you know, if you could just give more money to people, they'd be more happy. Socialism says if you could just give people more, they wouldn't have more of the issues that they have. One candidate recently said, the issue of wealth and income inequality is the great moral issue of our time. It is the great economic issue of our time, and it is the great political issue of our time. I'm sorry, but wealth and income inequality is not what God uses to exalt a nation. It is righteousness that God uses to exalt a nation. It is responsibility. Number two, socialism punishes virtue. You see, under a socialistic approach, money is taken and money is given without respect to the person it's given to and their responsibilities or their faithfulness. It doesn't matter whether you are a crook, criminal, murderer, you get the same amount just because you're a person. It sounds so almost righteous, but it is so destructive. It punishes those who are responsible. It punishes those who work hard. And socialism encourages stealing. 
Socialism removes any motivation to work. Socialism encourages envy and class warfare. Do you see what's happening in our culture today? Do you see a war in the forefront? Do you see one group being lit against another? Do you see one class being taunted to hate another class? Do you see what's happening? This is what happens when you remove God and you remove accountability and you remove responsibility and everyone does what's right in their own eyes and they look across the room and they want what this person has and this person has and then they'll fight and rage, do whatever it is and then now there's a government approach to come along and say, we will solve it all. We will be the God who distributes. We will be the God who takes care of your children. We will be the God who educates you. We will be the God who provides for all your welfare. We will be the God who provides for all your health. We will be the God who does all things for you. It couldn't be more contrary to the truths of Scripture. Let me finish up here. Number five, socialism seeks to destroy marriage and family. The minute you take away responsibility and you begin to teach irresponsibility and trust in the government, you destroy the very foundation of our society, the family. Now I want to finish today with a passage from scripture. We won't be in this long. Jesus told a parable in Luke 19, if you want to make some notes just quickly. In this parable, Jesus describes it this way. Or the Bible describes it and says, Now, as many heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. I'm in verse 11, now verse 12. Therefore he said, Jesus said, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. There was a man, he says, who had much. And he went off to travel to get a kingdom and to come back. Verse 13. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas. Now, if you have a study Bible, you know you probably already looked down at the bottom to see what is a mina. It's about three months' salary. So you just do a little bit of figuring in your head all of a sudden. Whatever your income is for a month, multiply that times three. That's some ching-ching, right? I don't care who you are. That's some ching-ching. All right? And this man said, um, do business till I come. I want you to take this, and I want you to do some business. I want you to provide an increase in this. It says, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want to have this man to reign over us. Verse 15. So it was when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. It's time for account. It's time for responsibility. Come on back, boys. This is the time we're going to look at what you did. Verse 16. Then came the first saying, master, your mina has earned 10 minas. Woo, man. You talk about some increase. That's a lot. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you are faithful in a very little and have a, you will have authority over 10 cities. He rewarded responsibility. It's a good thing. He promoted them. He gave him freedom. He gave them all opportunity to begin with, and he promoted the one who had done well. Verse 18. And the second came saying, master, your mind has earned five minus. Likewise, he said to him, you shall be over five cities. Dude, way to go. Verse 20. 
Then another came saying, Master, here's your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? Why didn't you act responsibly? Why did you just keep it and hide it? And he said to those who stood by, verse 24, take the mina from him and give it to him who has 10 minas. But they said to him, master, he has 10 minas. Why am I taking from the one who has little to give to the one who has so much already? Watch this. Verse 26 on screen. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. The one who's responsible gets more. The one who's irresponsible gets nothing. Because responsibility is more important than money. You teach that to your kids. We teach it here in the church. Let's put it in place in our culture. I want a government that's based on righteousness and responsibility that promotes free exchange in business, that encourages individuals to own and be responsible and rewards you not overly taxes you. And I sure don't want a government who's going to take what I have and give it to someone else who has been irresponsible. You and I are called to be responsible. We're called to own our sin. Don't blame someone else for what you did. Own it. You're called to be responsible with Jesus. He's been given to you. Don't squander that. Don't put it off. Don't dismiss it. Own it. Own him. Own his salvation he's given to you. Be responsible for what he's called you to do. Live out your faith now. Don't dismiss it as just some Sunday morning ticket. No, it is your life. Live that out. Be responsible. Walk in that. God will bless it. Let's build a country based on that. Let's build a lifestyle based on that. Let's build a church based on that. And watch what God does. It'll be powerful. It's for reasons like this that Joshua would stand and say, there are two choices out there today. If it seem evil to you to serve the Lord your God, then serve the other prophets. But Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And may that be where we are as followers of Jesus Christ. Not based on my opinion, but based on scripture and truth that is eternal and has proven itself true even in our own nation's history. Let's pray together. 
Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for truth. I thank you that you call us to apply it and live it. I thank you for an opportunity to speak into the culture. And I pray that this election won't be the only time that we do this, but that it would be a lifestyle for us, a way we live every day. I thank you for a church that's willing to look at the day through the lens of Scripture. Look at the day through obedience to your Son. And I pray that this would be the day we would choose to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen, church. Thank you for being here this Sunday. If you haven't seen uh, kids yet, they're all in costumes and having a great time. And so do we have... Yes. So we actually have live feed right now of glow worship going on. So if you look at the screens right now, you can see our kids in crazy costumes going great. Yeah. Give it up for Micah and the team up there for putting that together. It looks so fun. And so, yeah, they're having a great time. And so anyways, thank you for joining us this Sunday. If this is your first Sunday and you haven't connected with us, we would love to connect with you at the Welcome Center. If you're watching online, we would love to connect with you as well. So you can click the link below in the comments. My name's Matt and this is Nikki. And here's your vertical announcements. Okay, so tonight our Sunday night program will resume at 6 p.m. this evening. We have two adult classes. We have Crushing Snakes with Brian Treadaway and Defined with Mr. Barton, and they're both great. Also, our kids' ministries will be meeting tonight again as well, and Extreme is even going to have a foam party, so it should be tons of fun. Yeah, they'll have a foam pit right out here, so Extreme kids and parents make sure they wear stuff that you're not going to be disappointed when they come home. And so, church, we have a Next Step event coming up Sunday, November 15th. So if you're interested in taking that next step and join the Vertical family and become a member, this event is for you. You will have a dinner provided. You'll be sitting with a Vertical family and hearing the stories that have happened here at Vertical. You also hear a vision from each staff member and all the ministries here at Vertical Church. So if you and your family are interested to take that next step, Step. you can sign up on Facebook or you can sign up at the Welcome Center as well. Awesome. So November 15th is busy. We're also going to have parent-child dedication during service that day. So that will be an, a busy and important day. So this event is different than salvation. If you feel led to bring your family and your children to stand in front of our church so that we can love and support you and declare that you're going to raise your children and family in the ways of the Lord, then this event is for you. There will be an informational meeting following the service on November the 8th. So if you're interested, please join. And you can sign up for that on Facebook as well. And church, we're so excited. Christmas is right around the corner. Has anyone started decorating yet for Christmas? Any of no? Okay, good. Just got to make sure. Put your hand. Be ashamed if you were raising your hand because it is not even Halloween yet. But anyways, what that means is it's time for Christmas shoe boxes again. And if you've been at Vertical, you know what that is all about. And that's exciting. But if you're new to Vertical, we have a video to kind of explain what that is. The 
count of three when children open the shoe boxes, they are so excited. I mean, it's just been incredible. Kids are so excited, giving them a gift, do it in Jesus' name, and that's what this is all about. It's a gospel opportunity. It's the chance for the children to change the entire life. The word of God is spreading. The gospel is advancing. It is impacting children. It is impacting families. It is impacting the world greatly. Thank you for praying. Thank you for giving. God will bless. And God will use your gift to touch the life of a child and to be able to do it in Jesus' name. So thank you. Thank you for being a part of it. God bless each and every one of you. So yeah, it's an awesome thing what Samaritan Purse does every year. And we have the shoe boxes out here so you and your family can grab one or many shoe boxes and you go and you pack these shoe boxes. It tells you how to pack them, what to put in them. You pick a boy or girl and what age group you're packing for. And then you pay nine bucks. We have a slip for that you need to grab also for shipping and handling. So I know it's a great way for you and your family. I know Nikki said that her kids just adore it and love it and to be able to bless the children not just with toys and stuff that they're not used to but also they get a gospel represent presentation and that is the best part of this so you can grab shoe boxes at the welcome center after the service Wow, that's so exciting. I can't wait. My kids already are excited about it because they heard about it. Okay, guys, those were your vertical announcements. Thank you so much for joining today. Yeah, awesome. Very good. Thank you. So the church is responsible, uh, of course, for teaching and preaching. We're also responsible to baptize those who come into the faith. We're responsible to administer the Lord's Supper or communion. But the church is also responsible to recognize those that God has called into ministry. And the way that happens is through a twofold process. If an individual comes and says, I believe God's called me into ministry, I meet with them, our elders meet with them and discuss with them. And then we give them, once we believe that God truly has put a call in their life, we give them a license to ministry. Now, I might equate that to, uh, say, a learner's permit when you go to get your driver's license. You take the elementary steps that are necessary, and then you're given permission to exercise that responsibility. You can go drive a car as long as someone else is with you, right? When you have reached a place of maturity and ability, then you get your permanent license. The church does that in the form of an ordination. So there's license and then ordination. Our church has licensed some men previously. In fact, it was one year ago today that we licensed six men right here. It was on this same weekend. Today, I want to invite Brad Vandenberg to come to the front. Brad's been a part of our church families from the beginning. Yeah. And Brad has served in ministry here. And he is one of our elders. He leads our restoration ministry. And Brad is one of those behind-the-scenes, make-it-happen guy. I know that if someone calls me and they're in a crisis and I need to hand that to someone, Brad's my guy. Brad's going to go and help meet that need. He, Brad's worked as a fireman before, and so he knows what it's like to rush into a burning building and rescue someone. And that's what Brad does. 
in all the years that Brad's been in church, he's never been licensed to ministry. So I'm excited that Vertical gets to be that today. So Brad, I'm presenting to you the certificate of license. It looks very, very official and cool, doesn't it? It's awesome. You get to hang it on your wall. And it's a paper representation of a very personal thing that Vertical Church knows about you, that God has called you into ministry. And we're grateful for that. And I'm grateful that we get to serve alongside each other in the process. This does not mean that Brad's on staff here, but it means he is, a, he is given this license to function on behalf of Vertical Church in a role of ministry. So the way we do that here is I want to invite our elders to come forward. If you're an elder of Vertical Church, I ask you to come forward now. And I want you to gather around Brad and lay hands on him. This is not the total group of our elders today. We have many who are out, but these are three of them. And they are going to pray for Brad. But Brad, before we do, I want to read a couple of scriptures that uh, are important. Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, that you have been given by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. And then also... Paul wrote to Timothy again. And he wrote this to a young, fiery pastor. You can relate to his personality. Brad is a go-getter, a fireball, and I'm grateful for that. But here's what Paul wrote to him. He said, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. God has blessed Brad in that area of helping people who have been trapped, held captive. God has used Brad to help them be free. And some of them are here in this room today. So I'm grateful for Brad. And I would ask you to stand with me today as we pray. I'm going to pray for Brad. You join me as we pray. Our Father, I thank you for men that you call to minister, to represent the gospel, to stand in the place of your Son, infused with the power of your Spirit, to speak truth, to set captives free. And I thank you for Brad, who has a testimony of this in his life. You've used him to challenge and to change many who have found themselves in destruction. And through him, you have brought the gospel that they might be free. So we stand with him today, recognizing your call upon his life. I pray he would remember this day as a day we stood with him, as a day we confirmed what you have started in him. And I pray you'll bless the words that come from his mouth, that it might be words and a spirit that call others to transformation, to repentance, to change. We bless you today, Father, because you bless Brad and us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 amen.
Amen. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Y'all can stand. Y'all can remain standing. Y'all know what to say. Let's say it loud and proud. Lift him up, band. <laughs>